From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Elise, Chantel, Sonia, Dan, Maya, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Elena, Alethea, John, Nanette, Rachel, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, and Stacy. Thank you so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead, as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and, well, we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast will be on Clifford Olson. Clifford Robert Olson Jr. was born on January 1st, 1940 in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So as we do, let's get into some history for that time. Since we have discussed World War II quite a lot, other things were going on, such as the first Captain America comic book was published. The cover featured the character punching Hitler. It originally sold for 10 cents. Arguably, playing the best character in Gone with the Wind, Mammy, Hattie McDaniel became the first black actor to win an Academy Award, Best Actress in a Supporting Role. Unfortunately, due to segregation in the South, she wasn't even allowed to attend the Atlanta premiere of the movie the year before. Also in 1940, Franklin D. Roosevelt won the election and became the United States' first third term president. And the Selective Training and Service Act was signed into law, which required men between the ages of 21 and 35 years old to be registered for the draft lottery. Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky, born Lev Davidovich Bronstein from Ukraine, was forced to seek asylum in Mexico, where he was assassinated with an ice axe, I might add. An annular solar eclipse was observed over the United States this year. This eclipse had the sun blocked completely out by the moon for six to seven minutes with just a narrow circle of brilliance around its rim. 
and much to the delight of some of the serial killers born around this time, nylon stockings went on sale and were instantly popular. Millions of units sold right away. Life magazine at this time cost just 10 cents. The prehistoric cave paintings were discovered in France. Walt Disney's animated movie Pinocchio is released along with Fantasia, and Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator was also released. So this was the atmosphere that Clifford was born into. His parents were Clifford and Leona Olson. Clifford Sr. was a serviceman in the Canadian Army, but I didn't find anything that specifically said he fought during World War II. Leona was a homemaker, but also worked outside of the home. Clifford was the couple's first child, and the couple would then go on to have Richard, then Dennis, and finally Sharon. So once the war was over, when Clifford was five years old, the family moved to the sprouting suburb of Richmond into one of the many housing schemes for returning veterans. It was a small house near the Pacific National Exhibition grounds. Clifford Sr. delivered milk and was actually one of the last to do so from a horse-driven cart. He would go on to also work in construction as well as being an apartment building manager, and Leona would often work as a housekeeper. And though they weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination, they did provide their children a pretty comfortable middle-class life. As a child, Clifford was described as a, quote, short, stocky child, and it would seem from the beginning that Clifford had behavioral problems. His cantankerous attitude did not go over well with his peers, and he would get into fights. His father was later interviewed and said, quote, he was always getting into fights and getting beaten up. One day he said, Dad, I'm going to learn to be a boxer. As soon as he did, he began making the rounds of the boys who had beaten him up and started evening the score. Maybe that's his trouble, that chip on his shoulder, end quote. Sources described him as a bully and a petty thief who tormented and tortured cats and dogs. It was hard for anyone to get a word in when talking to him as he was a compulsive talker, one of his tools for controlling people. He would deliberately misbehave to be the center of attention. He was skipping school already when he was only 10 years old, displaying the typical isolating behaviors, preferring the loner life. It was said that his mother was easily able to proudly brag about her three other children, how good they were, and their many good achievements. But when it came to Clifford, she always felt that she was just perpetually making her apologies or excuses for his behavior. In 1955, at 15 years old, he had missed so much school, he was held back, and this had not been the only time. So the next year, he dropped out completely and began working at a racetrack. And though he had, again, always been a troublemaker, he was now becoming a fixture on the police's radar. And then, at 17 years old, he was arrested and was sentenced to his first real time in prison, 
A nine-month jail sentence at the New Haven Borstal Correctional Center for breaking and entering and theft. And this was his childhood. This is, again, a bit tricky because we don't really have, or at least I didn't immediately find, anything about his family background with regards to any possible inheritable traits. But going with the little bit of information we have, it would at least appear, outwardly of course, that his parents were fairly stable people. His father worked, as well as his mother, and they made an honest living. It was said that his siblings were positively normal. So that leaves us with Clifford. With no information that might point to abusive or neglectful parents, we just have little to go on. And though he got into fights with other children, this really isn't that uncommon, and I saw no instances where he endured anything that would push him to the point of the defiance that he displayed. There was no mention of sexual abuse or any other type of abuse from extended family or anything of the sort. And again, this is just my opinion, but his behavior seems to lean towards oppositional defiant disorder. Now, according to John Hopkins, oppositional defiant disorder, or ODD, is a type of behavior disorder. It is mostly diagnosed in childhood. Children with ODD are uncooperative, defiant, and hostile towards peers, parents, teachers, and other authority figures. They are more troubling to others than they are to themselves. Researchers don't know exactly what causes ODD, but there are two main theories. One, developmental theory, which suggests that the problems start when the children are toddlers. Children and teens with ODD may have had trouble learning to become independent from a parent or other main person to whom they were emotionally attached. Their behavior may be normal developmental issues that are lasting beyond the toddler years. And two, learning theory, which suggests that the negative symptoms of ODD are learned attitudes. They mirror the effects of negative reinforcement methods used by parents and others in power. The use of negative reinforcement increases the child's ODD behaviors. That's because these behaviors allow the child to get what he or she wants, attention and reaction from parents or others. But again, I just don't see this being the case with Clifford. Of course, we would need more information about his parents or others to determine this. So which kids are at risk for ODD? For starters, it is more common in boys than girls. Children with mood or anxiety disorders are more likely to have ODD, as well as conduct disorder and children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And as far as ADHD goes, that is going to be the subject of an upcoming true crime science episode, so be watching for that. Symptoms of ODD include having frequent temper tantrums, arguing with adults frequently, refusing to do what is asked of them, questioning authority, intentionally doing things to annoy or upset others, blaming others for their own mistakes, being overly annoyed by others, having a lot of unnecessary anger, and being vindictive. Treatment includes, of course, behavioral and cognitive therapy, whole family therapy, 
peer group therapy, and of course, medications. Sometimes children who are identified as having oppositional defiant disorder grow up to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, but very rarely ever are children under 18 ever diagnosed with ASPD. But I think as you continue to listen to the story, you will see this begin to unfold. So let's get back into it. So during his first sentence, he actually escaped, but was recaptured. Because of this, at 19, he had been eligible for parole, but that was revoked. He would be released just to be nearly immediately arrested again and put back in jail. And this was his pattern for the next 24 years. And in those 24 years, he managed to escape seven times. One example, in 1964, when Clifford was 24, he had escaped prison, was being pursued by law enforcement, and he hid in some blackberry bushes only to be found by a police dog. Another example, in 1965, he had been serving a three-and-a-half-year sentence in a British Columbia prison for breaking and entering with theft. Clifford was being escorted by three prison guards to the hospital because he had convinced them he was quite ill, and he simply ran from them. He managed to get a gun, so he was considered armed and dangerous. His chase involved dozens of police officers, and yet he still managed to slip through them in Vancouver's East End by a mere seconds, spending the night under the Queensboro Bridge in New Westminster. He was free for about a week before being found by a police dog in Blaine, Washington, as Border Patrol officers had called for assistance in apprehending him. You see, he had held up two teenagers in some woods right on the international border, and it was said that four different police forces had gathered to finally apprehend him. He was 25 years old at the time. During an interview with the local paper, when that had all gone down, the police asked Clifford's family to appeal to him to give himself up. His father said, quote, he knows what he's facing. He might have to serve 10 years. If he doesn't give himself up, I hope they get him before he does something really bad. He's done bad enough now, end quote. So Chief Border Inspector A.D. Brandon was interviewed and said, quote, He must have lain there in the leaves three hours with 50 people crisscrossing right through there, but the dog went straight for him, end quote. This was basically his existence during the 1960s. Now, during the 70s, he was released, but under strict mandatory supervision five separate times. And each time he went straight back to his life of crime. And really in his early adulthood, he had drummed up almost a hundred convictions, which included obstruction of justice, possession of stolen property, possession of firearms, forgery, false pretenses, fraud. I don't know how many parole violations, driving under the influence, theft, breaking and entering, armed robbery, escape from lawful custody, gross indecency, buggery, and rape. And while in prison, he was regularly sexually assaulting a very young male inmate. 
In 1976, while serving time in prison, Clifford was actually stabbed seven times by a group of prisoners, incensed because he had ratted them out to the prison guards as drug runners. Unfortunately, he had survived the attack, but he was a prison rat, if you will. He provided police enough information to help get a child rapist and murderer convicted and put in prison, so there's that. But other prisoners described him as a, quote, violent homosexual rapist, end quote. So in 1980, the now 40-year-old Clifford was released again and went back to his, quote, old stomping grounds in the outer municipalities of Richmond, Surrey, where he rented an apartment. Bear in mind that at the time of his release, he had only spent a grand total of four of his adult years outside of prison. He began seeing a woman named Joan Hale, and they moved in together pretty quickly. She was only described as being short, previously married, and was a pretty anxious woman. And in that same breath, he hired a sex worker, but had violently raped her. She turned him in, and he was arrested, only, unfortunately, she didn't show up to court, and he was released, which is unfortunate, because soon after, he would commit his first murder. In November 1980, 12-year-old Christine Weller was riding her bike home from being in town and visiting some of her favorite stores, only she never arrived. At first, her parents thought she must have been hanging out at a friend's house and weren't terribly concerned about her being late for dinner. She had done that before. Now, what I find personally very odd is that her parents didn't file a missing persons report for nearly a week after she went missing. The police labeled her a runaway. And then the police found her bicycle behind an animal hospital just off of King George Highway and only a few blocks from her home. Then on Christmas Day, a month and a half after she went missing, a man walking his dog found her remains in the back of a dump. She had been stabbed multiple times in the chest and abdomen and had been strangled with a belt. It was unclear if she had been sexually assaulted. As the months went on, Joan had become pregnant with a boy. The couple moved into an apartment building where Clifford had worked as a manager. Then in April 1981, 13-year-old Colleen Daynault went to a friend's house to hang out for a while. She had told her grandmother that she would be back home around 4 p.m. Around 1 p.m., she was seen at a bus stop. Clifford had pulled up rolled the window down and called for her attention. Her skeletal remains wouldn't be found until five months later in an isolated forest, not too far from the United States border. Her own sister was called to identify her clothes, which were all of half of the young girl's bra and the red Adidas t-shirt her sister had borrowed from her. Can you imagine? At a particular shopping mall, the kids and teens were pretty well aware of Clifford, and needless to say, they were not fans. He would drive around the area or hang out with the kids at the shopping mall, offering to buy them beer or get them drugs. 
Of course, we know now that this was how he would render his victims helpless so that he could rape them and then most of the time release them. They described him as creepy, the boogeyman, or the candy man. So just five days after Colleen went missing, 16-year-old Darren Johnsroot was visiting his mother in the area during Easter school break as he lived with his father in Saskatchewan. He had been seen in a drugstore near this shopping mall buying a pack of cigarettes. A little over a week later, Darren's body was found on the north bank of the Fraser River. He had been bludgeoned to death by repeated blows to the head with what appeared to be a hammer. The local police, knowing that usually child predators stuck to one gender and age range, didn't immediately connect Darren to the other two young girls. Other ways Clifford was able to lure in older children or younger teens was alarmingly similar to the very well-known case of John Wayne Gacy, a story from someone who had encountered him, who will remain anonymous, stated, quote, on a promise of $5 per hour for landscaping labor, he hired several of us skinny kids while turning away what I thought to be stronger, more suitable workers. Olsen raped some of the boys by first singling out a person for special duties and slowly gaining the confidence and respect of each individual by bragging about how bad he was and how he used to be. He used money or recreational rewards as bribes, even before the sexual activities occurred, end quote. So Joan, who was at this point enduring Clifford's drunken physical abuse and squandering every cent she had gotten from her divorce settlement, gave birth to their son in May of 1981, naming him Clifford III, and not long after, they were married. The night before the wedding, he had actually encouraged Joan to go out and have some fun with her friends, which she appreciated. While she was out, he offered to watch a neighbor's five-year-old daughter, whom he promptly sexually assaulted. Just four days after the birth of his son, he murdered 16-year-old Sandra Wolfsteiner. Some sources say she had been visiting her boyfriend, and others say she had been visiting her mother. She lived with her grown sister. But regardless, she was hitchhiking home when Clifford spotted her and picked her up, took her into some woods where he bashed her head from behind, killing her. A month later, 13-year-old Ada Court had been babysitting her younger siblings the night before, and that Sunday morning, she had been waiting for the bus to go visit a friend when she just vanished. Clifford had picked her up, drove her to a secluded area near Weaver Lake, where he repeatedly bashed her in the head with a hammer, his preferred weapon, killing her. Her skeletal remains were much later discovered. After Ada's murder, Clifford would begin to kill much more frequently, though he didn't always kill. He was still very much plying children and teenagers with alcohol and then sexually assaulting them, and his lust for, let's say, illegal child media was at an all-time high. His next victim was nine-year-old Simon Partington, 
On July 2nd, 1981, he had been riding his bike to go visit a friend, but he never arrived. Clifford picked him up with the offer of a couple of bottles of beer, allegedly drove him to a remote area of Richmond, and then strangled him to death. A week later, 14-year-old Judy Cosma was headed to a nearby city for a job interview with the fast food chain Wendy's. Clifford pulled over and offered her a ride to her interview, to which she unfortunately agreed. Interestingly, he already had 18-year-old Robert Ludlow in his vehicle with him. They arrived at Wendy's too early for the interview, so Clifford offered and bought the two teens alcohol and offered drugs. Robert was then dropped off at the local mall. Clifford then took Judy to Weaver Lake, where he stabbed her to death. After Judy's death, he took Joan and his infant son on a short vacation, and when they returned, about two weeks after Judy's murder, Clifford lured 15-year-old Raymond King Jr. into his vehicle with the promise of paying him for some work. He then drove him down a secluded back road, ending up at a campsite. He bashed the teen's head in with rocks and dumped his body off the side of a very steep hill off of a trail. Now, a few days before Raymond's murder, Clifford was actually mentioned at a law enforcement conference. An investigator who had begun to suspect him for the murder of Ada had begun to build a case. The investigator put together a five-page profile to present during a meeting with other investigators. He had outlined Clifford's past criminal exploits and suspected current criminal activities. After this, he was considered a very real suspect and was firmly on the radar. Two days after he killed Raymond, witnesses saw Clifford with 18-year-old Sigrun Arndt, who was a German student visiting the area in a pub together. Later, her body was found partially buried in peat in a trench around 400 yards from where Simon had been found just the day before. On July 27, 1981, just two days after murdering Sigrun, 15-year-old Terry Carsons left her family home that Monday morning to go for a job interview when Clifford saw her. Though it would seem reluctantly, she accepted a ride from him and he offered her a beverage that he had drugged. He then drove out to a secluded area where he strangled her to death, then burned her clothing and tossed her purse and shoes into the Fraser River. This time, Clifford was the prime suspect, but they just didn't have enough evidence to charge him with anything. So they watched and waited, but he knew that he was being watched. He took his wife and child on a trip to Alberta and the surveillance stopped, but the case they were building still continued. And yet he still managed to pick up 15-year-old Louise Chartrand while she was hitchhiking to get to her night shift at a local diner. He drove her to a gravel pit north of a ski resort, then smashed her head in with a hammer, then buried her in a very shallow grave. So on August 12th, he was spotted picking up two young ladies who were hitchhiking. Then about three hours later, 
He was seen driving erratically on the highway. Two police cars tried to block his path, and at this point, a helicopter crew aided in the chase. He was able to get past them, and then he was again spotted outside his car with two individuals passing a bottle between them. Once he saw the police, he ran and jumped into his car, but was stopped and arrested at a roadblock. The police arrested and charged him with impaired and dangerous driving and suspicion of attempting to abduct two girls. They then searched the rented car he had been driving and found a small green address book with Judy Cosma's name on it. By his arrest, only three of his 11 victims had been found, all of them children and teens. He was then charged with Judy's murder. So, he was able to get a rather scandalous plea deal where he agreed to confess to murdering 11 children and teens in exchange for showing the location of all of the remains. In return, it was agreed that the amount of $10,000 for each victim would be paid into a trust for his wife, Joan, and their son, which makes no sense to me at all. Joan actually received $100,000 total, though the families of the victims were none too pleased. Clifford was given back-to-back life sentences to be served in Canada's super maximum security prison in Quebec, which also housed more of the country's most dangerous criminals. The judge stated, quote, My considered opinion is that you should never be granted parole for the remainder of your days. It would be foolhardy to let you at large." On September 30th, 2011, Clifford Olson died from terminal cancer at the age of 71. I got a lot of my source material from a very specific site, which I will link in the notes if you're interested in reading it. It goes into much more depth than I did with small details. Now, Clifford scored 38 out of 40 on a psychopathy checklist, also known as the Hair Psychopathy Checklist, which is a psychological assessment tool most commonly used to assess the presence of psychopathy in people usually already institutionalized, in an attempt to differentiate them from those already diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And we in this community are pretty familiar with what psychopathy is. It is a neuropsychiatric disorder marked by deficient emotional responses, lack of empathy, and poor behavioral controls, commonly resulting in persistent antisocial deviance and criminal behavior. According to the National Library of Medicine, National Center for Biotechnology Information, quote, accumulating research suggests that psychopathy follows a developmental trajectory with strong genetic influences and which precipitates deleterious effects on widespread functional networks, particularly within paralimbic regions of the brain, end quote. But it didn't seem that either of his parents had any kind of issue, if you will, though I readily admit background information was basically null when it came to his family. 
So again, with very little to no background information on Clifford's past family and their behaviors, it's hard to say, but it would seem to me that he is one of the rare cases of being born to kill. So tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below, or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is in the notes. But most importantly, you guys know, I thank you so very much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.